Good morning, church. Find you again of the festival carols this evening, and as is our custom on the Lord's Day, you'll experience a broad array of musical tastes and styles that uh, reflect the best of the past and the present and of our city as well. So this is something for you to bring your friends and neighbors to, to bring churched and unchurched and unsaved and de-churched. It'll be appropriate. They'll hear the gospel sung and preached as well. And as you're considering an end-of-the-year gift too, please consult the, the box on the back of your bulletin. I want you to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 1. We've been studying the ordinary characters of the Christmas story. We've looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. Today is Joseph. This evening, surprisingly, will even be the wise men. They were pretty ordinary too. And shepherds and Simeon and Anna yet to come. And by ordinary, we mean that they are just like us. We are all ordinary. Ordinary sinners ordinarily helpless, ordinary in our weaknesses, ordinary in our fragility. But what I want you to find in these biblical characters is that um, you're going to be hard-pressed to find that you're any worse off than any one of these biblical characters. Even though sometimes we think that we are even more ordinary than other people. We're so ordinary, God could not possibly use us. We're so broken emotionally or physically or spiritually or, or socially. There's no way, no way that God could use us, much less in an extraordinary way. Well, I hope you find encouragement from the gospel in the life of Joseph. We look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And I'll guide you to where we're reading in the in chapter 2 now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 13. <clears throat> now when the, that is the, uh, wise men had departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, took the child, his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would dispatch your Holy Spirit, that you would pour him out on us this morning as we read and study your word, that we might see Jesus, and that Jesus would convince us again that he is the one who came to save and to use and powerfully equip sinners to be extraordinary witnesses to the gospel. We pray in the strong name of Christ. And for his sake, God's people said together, amen. Last night was the Heisman Trophy presentation. That trophy reserved for the greatest player in college football. It went to Joe Burrow. He's a quarterback for some team that just suddenly escapes my mind. Purple and gold, they have letters for their abbreviation, initials, something like that, LSU. Joe Burrow, a remarkable player. He, he was on the team for Ohio State for three years, never saw any playing time, transferred. Coach Ogeron believed in him, bringing, brought him in. He became remarkable quarterback, amazing statistics. Now, what was it that made him or makes him an extraordinary player? Well, there may be any number of technical explanations, but that's not what he gave last night in his amazing speech, his very emotional speech. His speech explained that he was an extraordinary player because of the extraordinarily generous people around him. He thanked his offensive line for one. How many... How many quarterbacks and running backs ever think their offensive line? He started with his O-line. Then he praised to Doc, uh, Coach Ogeron, of course, for believing in him, but nobody else did. He thanked his parents, his dad in particular, who left 51 years of playing and coaching in order to watch his son play. He, he was thankful that he, had been, that he had that opportunity, a national platform, though he came from the, from the part of southeast Ohio that's twice as poor as the average poverty level in America. He thanked people for their grace and proved once again that it's grace. God made the world to run by grace. God made the world to run by grace, not by law, not by threat, not by hate, not by exclusivism. God 
made the world to run by grace. God so loved the world that He gave, that He gave His only begotten Son. What explains how someone becomes extraordinary? They become extraordinary for the long haul of life. There's grace in their lives. What explains the greatness of Joseph? Was it Joseph's obedience? Was it his his strong character? Was it that he had brought himself up by his bootstraps? He was made great. He was made great only by grace. Not reading it into the text, it arises out of the text, it arises out of the text theologically. Joseph is called a just man, sort of a generic word in Scripture, or I should say a word that has a broad universe of meaning. It can mean justified, it can mean righteous, it can be, it can be a keeper of the law, it can be a man after God's own heart. This was a man who was righteous. He was just. And we know from Scripture that no one is made righteous except by God's giving him or her righteousness. The only way you can make it into heaven, the only way you can be saved is to ask Christ to give you his righteousness in the place of your sin. Joseph would have known that from his father Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was a just man. He was a righteous man by God's grace. We also know it from his life historically. He's identified as a son of David. David was many things, but one thing he was not was righteous on his own. David was a murderer. David was a liar. David was an adulterer. David, in his strength, did everything he could to intercept, interrupt the flow of God's redemptive plan, but God in His grace, conquered David, drew him back, caused the Messiah to come through his line regardless. Joseph is an ordinary guy made extraordinary by the grace of God, the coming grace of God in Jesus Christ. And you will be too. You continue to come to the grace of Jesus Christ. You come to Him the first time, but you don't come to Him the last time. You must come back to Him again and again and again for His righteousness, His grace. And as you live in His grace, He makes you, like Joseph, uncommonly kind. He makes you, he makes you to, to obey without questioning God's motive. He will give you courage to be protective, undaunted by fear. Look at it how it comes out in the, in the passage in verses 18 to 20, this uncommon kindness of Joseph. You have to understand, the, have to appreciate the cultural background to see how Joseph is so uncommonly kind. <clears throat> Betrothal was not merely engagement in Joseph and Mary's day and age. Engagement today, if a couple is engaged, uh, it means they are more than likely going to get married. It means somebody has purchased a ring, somebody's put a down, posit, uh, 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 a down payment on a reception hall, something like that. The chances are high that they're going to get married. Betrothal was much more than that. In the, in the old world that Mary and Joseph were a part of, there are three stages of marriage. There was engagement that often occurred when the children were infants. Parents planned the marriage. And then later, 
if the woman, the woman had right of refusal, if the woman agreed, then they would go forward into betrothal. There would be a a ceremony, there would be witnesses from the family members, they would take their vows and they would be considered husband and wife, but they would still live separately. The, The husband would live away and the wife would still live with her parents. Sounds like a good arrangement to me. The father of three daughters, I think that's just fine. But they were, they were betrothed. They were, they were considered husband and wife, even, but they were not allowed to have relations. They kept separate. So much so that if, uh, if the man died before the wedding day, which was a big feast, then she would be called a virgin who was a widow. This is where Mary and Joseph were. They were in this stage. They hadn't had the big wedding party yet. They had not lived together. They had not had relations. But they were solemnly committed to one another, and they were called husband and wife, and any unfaithfulness would be considered adultery. So what was Joseph to think when he found out that Mary was pregnant? She doesn't explain, for one. She doesn't explain that she was that that which was in her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Probably she didn't explain it because who's going to believe it anyway? Nobody around her is going to believe it. And Joseph, is Joseph possibly going to believe that for the first time in human history, a woman has conceived a child without the aid of a husband? So the law would have not just allowed but prescribed in the old day, in the, in the, in the even more ancient world, she would have been stoned, but divorce was substituted for that punishment. And so they had two choices. Joseph had two avenues to him. It could be a public trial, shaming trial, or it could be a quiet certificate of divorce. Now, how do we know that he was kind? Because he didn't know what to do. He he knew what the law required, He was a righteous man. He knew what the law required. He knew that if he were to go forward in this relationship, it would only be a life of public shame. But he was not willing to put her to shame. Yes, he resolved to divorce her quietly, but he went to sleep while he was still considering these things. He had not acted on it. He's wrestling with it. Joseph is an uncommonly kind man. Kindness is a subset of being just. It is a subset of being righteous because it is to be a man after God's own heart. And he knew that his God had been not only righteous but kind in dealing with Abraham, his father, his great father. Abraham was no paragon of faith. He was no no example of truth-telling. He was a he was, uh, he was a man who compromised even on the protection of his wife. He, he knew that God was not only righteous, but he was kind toward his great ancestor David too, the murderer and the adultery. Joseph therefore wrestled in his mind between law and gospel, between what was right and kind at the same time. Jesus said, that the world will know us by the way we love one another. Francis Schaeffer said that in that commandment to love one another, 
and that apologetic connected to it that the world will know us by the way we love. He said that God, in a sense, gives the world permission to dismiss our witness if it does not see us loving each other. And Jesus said, furthermore, in, in, the, in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, He said, if you only love the way the Pharisees or the Sadducees love or the, the religious leaders of the day, if you only love the way they love, what do you do more than, they, more than others? Because they only love those who love them in return. In your righteousness to prove that you belong to me, to prove that you belong to your Father in heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he meant by that, your righteousness, your love must exceed. It must be uncommon. We could say it must be astounding. The world should not be able to look at us and say, well, Those Christians talk about love. At least they love the way we love. They love the people who agree with them and they hate the people who don't. Even within their own fellowship, they treat people that way. That should never be the case. I read an opinion piece in the New York Times <clears throat> uh, this week from a, from a fellow Christian. If I can impart a different way of approaching politics and shaping culture to my co-religionists, it would be to realize that a commitment to moral truth need not be at odds with being instruments of healing and grace. We need to find ways to love others in unexpected ways and show what it means to live faithfully in a world full of fear, as Mark Laberton The president of Fuller Theological Seminary puts it, we should be willing to accept good news wherever we find it. We shouldn't assume that joy, gratitude, and kindness are synonyms for weakness. And we should be known more for caring for our culture than for constantly being at war with it. To love in astounding ways means that we will be different from a cancel culture. To love in astounding ways means that we will be different from a culture given to, as another writer calls it, rage pornography. That is, looking for something that we can get mad about. We will be different from those who claim race supremacy regardless of the race. We will be those who love, especially in those places where people do not deserve to be loved and love, especially in those places where there is disagreement. How will the world know that the gospel is different? How will the world be convinced of the reconciling power of the gospel if it is not seen objectively in the way we love each other? Joseph was made extraordinary in his uncommon kindness because of the grace of God. He's also extraordinary in his unquestioning obedience. Look at verses 20 to 25. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, again, it's helpful to remember the cultural and, and historical background of Joseph. There was nothing 
maybe one verse, in Joseph's religious background to prepare him for a virgin birth. It's not like the prophets are constantly talking about the Messiah being born of a virgin. Isaiah mentions it once in chapter 7, verse 14. We'll come back to that in a minute. But otherwise, there is nothing in Jewish literature to compare, to, to prepare Joseph for the idea that a child would be born to a woman, the Messiah would be born to the woman without the aid of a man. There was nothing in pagan literature. Some of you may have heard in your university studies or those of you listening from your college dorm rooms today may have heard your college professors saying that uh, there are virgin birth accounts all over pagan literature. Well, there are accounts of births and there are accounts of relations between God and people, but they are repulsive. They are repugnant. They are vile. They're profane. They're violent. There's nothing that compares to this sweet and beautiful story of the Holy Spirit conceiving in the womb of the Virgin Mary, a Savior who would be God with us. There's no comparison. There is that one verse in Isaiah 7, verse 14, that it, it went by the Jews mostly because it was, it was in the context of, a sh of the promise of a short-term fulfillment. Let me just uh, fill in the Old Testament history there briefly. There was a king in the Old Testament, a king of Judah, the southern, the southern nation, who was being threatened by the king of Israel and the king of Syria. They had teamed up on him, and they were going to wipe him out. And if they had wiped him out, there would have been no line through which the Messiah would come. And so the, the king of Israel, king of Syria, teamed up and they were going to come against Ahaz. And the Lord invited Ahaz, Ahaz, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect this line. I'm going to bring forth the line of the tribe of Judah. I'm going to protect it. Now, do you want a sign to help encourage you? And Ahaz rejected it because Ahaz did not acknowledge that he needed to trust in the Lord. And so God says, in effect, in Isaiah chapter 7, I'm going to give you a sign whether you want it or not. Now, one sign is going to be that Assyria is going to come and they're going to wipe out those other two nations and I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you another sign. I'm going to give another sign to the world. You won't live to see it, but I'm going to give another sign. And that sign is that a virgin will give birth to a son and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that word translated virgin in Isaiah 7 means an unmarried woman. It's what it means. In the Old Testament, wherever that word appears, it means an unmarried woman. And that's who this was, an unmarried woman. And God was saying, in effect, no matter what tries to interrupt my redemptive plan, whether it's foreign nations or whether it's the unbelief of someone who claims to be on my side, though it's the unfaithfulness of my people, I am going to bring about my redemption. Joseph, when he heard son of David, could have concluded. That's what he means. Ah, that which is conceived in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit because God is the faithful God of the covenant. I will obey him even if it doesn't make sense. The other thing he would have known would, would have inspired his, his um, <clears throat> unquestioning obedience is when he heard that that which was conceived in her was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Joseph wouldn't have had a full, full uh, orbed, full developed 
fully developed theology of the Holy Spirit, but he knew at least a couple of things about the Holy Spirit. He would have known, for one, that the Holy Spirit, whenever the Holy Spirit spoke, whenever he spoke in the Old Testament, he spoke the truth, God's truth. So, Joseph would have known, this is truth. I can, I can bank on it. I can rest my life on it. He also would have known that the Holy Spirit is God's agent to control human affairs, to control history. He hovered over the face of the creation, brought order out of chaos. He is the one who moved, by, moved the hearts of men and women throughout history. He would have known, okay, this makes sense. God speaks truth. I can trust, trust in that. And God is the one by the Holy Spirit who made it so, made it so that this must be the Messiah, not just because he's virgin born, but because he is the only one who could be the son of David and an uncursed king. Let me explain that to you. Now watch, pay attention. You know, Joseph and Mary would have known their, their family trees, they didn't need to go to Ancestry.com or 23andMe. They would have known it from oral history. They would have known who their father, mother, great-grandfather, and so forth. And they both would have known, Mary and Joseph would have known, that they were descended from King David. And, and, and Joseph would have known that his line came through David's son Solomon, the royal line. And Mary would have known that her lineage came through David's son Nathan, the priestly line. The kingly line and the priestly line. The problem with Joseph's line is that it was cursed. You know, when the, the kings get down to Jehoiakim and then Jeconiah, th that's where the, the unbroken line of David on the throne, David's descendants on the throne, that's where it was broken. Jehoiakim sinned so greatly against the Lord, Jeremiah said to him, you're not going to have a descendant on the throne of David any longer. It's a cursed line. There was, no, there was no more royalty coming out of that family legally on the throne. And then, but, but then on the other hand, Mary's line is the uncursed and priestly line. So she had no legal claim to the throne. And, and, and Jesus is to be the king of kings and the descendant of David and the one who would sit on David's spiritual throne, the throne of God's promise. You see the beauty of God's powerful guidance of all of history, why we have these genealogies in Luke and Matthew? Because he's demonstrating to us that Jesus was the descendant of Joseph and had the, had the, the, the royal line in his blood line, and he was of the uncursed line through his mother and Mary and Joseph marrying each other, bringing those two lines together, and Jesus being born of them and having no descendants. He exhausted those lines. He is the only one, the only uncursed king in the descent of David, king of kings and lord of lords, and no one else could follow him. Joseph obeyed because he knew that his God was true and sovereign. And when you're convinced of the grace of God in your life too, the sovereign grace of God, you will obey Him as well. And then 
quickly, there is this last, this last profile of Joseph as one who is undauntingly protective. Jesus is about two years old by now when, when after the Magi had visited and uh, then G uh, Joseph is warned to take Jesus and flee to Egypt with him for his protection because Herod was on a pogrom to, to kill every child two, year, two years old and under. So he took him to Egypt. And he took him for some obvious reasons, or one obvious reason, which was to protect him. And to protect him not just as his son, to protect him as the Messiah. Because here is, here is what God said would happen back in Genesis 3, that the, that, the, that the seed of the serpent is going to constantly be warring against the seed of the woman, trying to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world, trying to prevent the Messiah from doing what he was called to do. Joseph, take that child down into Egypt to protect him, that he might be the Messiah. But there was another reason, and we, we've already alluded to it in our, in our study of the book of Exodus. He had to go to Egypt and return back from Egypt to fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I have brought my son. And remember, we've learned from Jude verse 5 that Jesus is the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt. That Christ was with them. It was because Christ was with them. It's because God brought Christ out of Egypt that the children of Israel came out. And here, God is in effect taking the curtain back and saying, the one you didn't see, now I want you to see, this is the one who made the trek with you and for you. There's another fulfillment of prophecy that comes when, comes when Jesus is taken by Joseph to Nazareth because Herod's son Archelaus was even worse than, than Herod, or, or, or not quite as bad, but he was still a mean guy and still dangerous, and, and he was warned to take him north. So he went to Nazareth in order to fulfill the promise that he would be called a Nazarene. Now you notice in verse, in verse 23, there are no quotation marks around that word that he would be called a Nazarene because there is no place in the Old Testament that explicitly says he'll be called a Nazarene. There's, there's a play on words possibly, but, but, but what he is saying is that, that he is fulfilling the anticipation of the prophets that he would be a man of lowly birth. He'd be someone who would come from a no-name city, someone who would be a complete surprise, not the powerful military political leader that they anticipated, but one through whom God would show His extraordinary grace through a very, a very unlikely person. Jesus fulfilled those prophecies by the protective measures of Joseph. There's another application there to us, by the way, that we are called... If we are recipients of God's grace, we will be called to and empowered to become protectors. Not in a patronizing or patriarchal way, or even matriarchal way, not in an oppressive way, but protectors to the point that we may even lay down our lives. There will always be those who cannot speak for themselves or those who are marginalized, or those who are in danger physically or socially or spiritually. And it is our calling, equipped as we are by grace, to be protectors of God's 
people. There's someone for you to protect. Joseph fulfilled his role as a husband and a father. His authority was given to him as it's given to husbands and fathers and elders and pastors. His authority was given to him not to lord it over Mary or his child. Of course, he couldn't lord it over Jesus. His authority was an authorization to be a protector. That's the only function of authority in any protector's life. Authorization to protect those entrusted to our care, even if it means our demise and death. It's a great privilege to respond to the grace of God in that way. God makes extraordinary witnesses out of ordinary people. This past week, I gained a new friend. Mainly by his graciousness, Michael Spradlin. Dr. Michael Spradlin is the president of Mid-America College and Seminary here in in Memphis. We had lunch together and have developed a a great friendship. And Michael Spradlin is is a runner. He's run eight marathons. And uh, the last marathon he ran was at St. Jude, the St. Jude Marathon. Some of you ran that race too, but I don't think that any of you ran it like Dr. Spradlin ran it, with someone else holding onto your elbow. Dr. Spradlin, Mike Spradlin, was asked by one of his students, Anthony Bonetti, if he would be his guide in the marathon because Anthony is blind. Anthony had been training on a treadmill, but he had never run a road race, and he asked Mike to be his guide. I just hold on to your elbow, and you, I'll just follow your steps. Mike couldn't tell him. He said it was no use to tell him, uh, you know, we're going to go up the hill, we're going to turn right and turn left. It didn't matter. He just needs to trust me for the next step. Anthony, he said, became, I, I was Anthony's guide, but Anthony became my teacher for how to trust and follow the Lord. Anthony Bonetti did an extraordinary thing. A blind man finished the St. Jude Marathon. Took him a little over seven hours, but they finished it. And how? By a gracious guide. An uncommonly kind undauntingly courageous, unquestioningly obedient servant named Mike Spradlin who was accompanied by an uncommonly kind, unquestioningly obedient, undauntingly courageous servant of Christ. Grace makes the ordinary into very extraordinary witnesses. Let's do it together. Let's trust Him as very ordinary people, a very ordinary congregation, for God to move us by His grace to witness in extraordinary ways. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word which finds us just as You found us. Just as you, Emmanuel, became God with us to save us from our sins. Please refresh us in that grace, those of us who already know you. And for those who do not know you, 
Would this be the day of their salvation? Would you continue to make us extraordinary witnesses as ordinary people to your abounding grace? In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.